Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I'm grateful that this is my third conversation with the author, actor, and workshop creator, Philip Shepard. You might remember that Philip Shepard has written a book called New Self, New World, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century. I was chatting a little bit with Philip before we turned on the microphone, and we were speaking together about learning and learning aptitude. And Philip was telling me how he felt about schools and learning, and I'd love for you to speak about that for the ones who listen to us. Well, the, the, the memories for me of school, the most vivid memories, oh, it was almost a sense that my energy was being strangled. I remember as, a, as maybe a, a 10-year-old, it was a spring day, and I was sitting in my class at my desk, and the teacher was going on about something, and I was looking out the window at this beautiful day outside, trying to understand why I couldn't just run out and join in. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a huge construct within our, our culture that children should go to school and sit at a desk and suppress the body's energy and learn to just deal with abstractions and live in their head and, and of course, metaphorically and literally pay attention to the head of the class. Um, and to think of what, you know, children are so tender and curious and excited and avid to learn. And we, in effect, say, no, no, you shouldn't learn these things, and you shouldn't learn in that way. Here is how you have to learn. And, and, uh, and the natural learning that a child is impelled towards is, is sort of thwarted and demeaned in favor of the, the learning that is offered up by this, by this factory school system. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how that might be changed, given all that depends on it. But the very things that depend on it are so out of balance. The, you know, the the economic system, the the our, our ways of of appreciating beauty and and the world. Uh, are thwarted and 
and how these things, all these things would have to adjust in order to profoundly honor the child and honor its, its gift of curiosity and learning. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, I look at it and it's like a Gordian knot and I don't know how to begin to untangle it. Well, if I may, I'm going to ask you, how have you entangled, disentangled this with your own children? It's a a good question. Um, I wasn't wholly successful. Um, And I, you know, my... uh, my daughters went through the public school system, and I, w- I was fortunate because I, I live on an island, <clears throat> and and uh, most of the island on which I live is a park, and there's a school uh, that goes up to grade six in the middle of a park, and it's a school that looks out at the lake, and there's no fence around the school. It's just parkland, and, and horses come and look in the windows, you know, in the in the middle of winter, and it's it's a it's part of the school is is just a regular grade school, and part of the school um, is a science school. So they were they were already um, uh, they start the school starts out with certain advantages, and when they went there, there were compassionate teachers, not all of them, but but enough, and and then. And then things changed, and and at a certain point, um, we pulled our daughter from the public school system and put her into a private school. And it was a very, very difficult thing to do because um, it's like it's like it's like giving up on something that 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 you can't change, and yet it goes on and damages lives. And <clears throat> the fact that we were in a position we could pull our daughter out of that and, and give her a, a more um, nurturing environment didn't lessen the fact that, that there were so many others who can't. So I, I, I feel so strongly the public school system needs support but you know the bottom line is when your when your child is is being traumatized by the experience you you have to do something well this brings you brings us back to your book and i i know that there's a little cunning in my asking you to join us again and again and that is that i pick up your book again, New Self, New World, Recovering Our Senses in the 21st Century, and I dive in your book again, and I'm amazed of about how beautiful the information is in there. And so I want to ask you after this talk about schools, I wonder would we need to recover our senses in the 21st century if we were not locked up for 12 years, 16 years, whatever it is? It's a really, it's a really good question. Uh, you only need to recover senses when you've lost them. And 
and what we lose in that school system is so profound. Um, we lose touch with our own bodies and our own energy, uh, which is a which is a bit of a miracle considering how vibrant that young energy and those young bodies are. So, so you know, it's a testament to the. Um, ingenuity of the system in a way that it can actually suppress and and subvert that energy and you know if 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 children were nurtured and honored in their learning then i think it would change everything in society i think it would change um the way we understand nature i mean nature has become uh, um, certainly in our urban environments decoration that's extraordinary to me that our most intimate teacher is is sort of relegated to the status of decoration and you know it, it happens to be alive unless it dies and then you put in a plastic replica which is almost just as good um, you know, it, we, it, the disconnection is so profound, and I, so that would change um, the way we, the way we, our anxiety would change. And I think, uh, you know, when you think of of the messaging in our culture, which is so subtle and omnipresent, and tells us. There is no such thing as enough. And what is enough technology? What 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 is enough money? What is enough time? What you know? What is enough? It, it, we've lost our our sense entirely of enough. So, in that regard, one of the senses we need to recover is our sense of enough. And 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 when it, you know when you're in a state of mind. That that understands there's not enough. I don't I don't have enough stuff. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough happiness. I don't have enough health. I don't have have enough guidance. I don't have enough answers. When you're in that state, you can only be in a state of anxiety. And it, it's an extraordinary exercise to just kind of sit quietly and say out loud, this is enough. And when I do that, it's almost, it's almost like the richness of the world begins to seep through the environment in all its particularity, and, and the present comes alive. But the present can't come alive as long as, as long as it's been encoded in our being that there isn't enough. So I, I think, you know, that, that scarcity is another of the, the messages that school inculcates in us. You know, your grades aren't good enough. You don't have enough knowledge. You, you don't have enough obedience. You don't have enough whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, your question, it's an interesting question. If, if the school system changed, I think everything the, the children who came through it would it would change our world in its entirety, would reinvent it. 
Um, they would recover our sense of enough, recover our sense of beauty, recover our sense of compassion, recover our sense of balance. You know, we, uh, I, I find it so extraordinary that the senses we recognize, the human senses, you know, the sense of the five senses, taste, touch, sight, hearing, they're all, they're all senses that set up a, a sort of subject-object relationship with the world where that is there and the sight of it comes into my eye and is interpreted by my brain. It's like a stimulus response. Mm-hmm. And that's that model of stimulus response, seductive though it, it is, isn't actually the way we, we sense the world. Um, and there are so many senses that are not stimulus response that we don't recognize. And, and when you don't recognize a sense, you, you can't track it. So, you know, there's this African culture in, in which the sense of balance is their foremost balance, uh, their foremost sense. So they, they, um, they'll bounce a, a child who's still a toddler, still unable to walk even, bounce the child on the floor and say, balance, balance, and they grow up knowing that a sense of balance is the foremost sense to, to carry a child into adulthood. Well, we don't, e- we don't even recognize in that way the sense of balance. It's not one of our five senses because it doesn't separate us from the world. Balance is something you feel in your body in relationship to the world. It's not, it, it's not a stimulus response thing. It's an embodied sensitivity, and 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 so we we glom onto these senses that that um, sort of produce a disconnection or a sense of disconnection from the world, and we ignore so many other senses that leave us. It's almost, uh, I. It's almost like I can't imagine it because it's so overwhelming. You know, when you were talking, I I thought this balance that you're talking about that takes me to the core of the ecological crisis. I mean, we need to trust. Earth's balance. We need to trust the balance of our house, and yeah. we're tampering. We're tampering. Perhaps we are. Perhaps we're interfering with the balance of the Earth. I think so. But you know, balance is that funny thing because balance is is at its sort of root your felt relationship with the Earth. It's your center of gravity coming into relationship with the Earth's center of gravity. And, and our, our disregard of balance as a primary sense, it comes back to that principle in my book that the way you relate to the body is the 
template for how you relate to the world. And so to to um, have a, a tenuous sense of balance in your own body, you step into the world and, and your sense of balance with the world is, is also tenuous. It's a, it, you don't really notice it because you're so busy with, with acquisition and managing and systematizing. Um, and, and balance isn't really an issue until something falls over and then you sort of say, oh, what happened? And th- my goodness, things are falling over. Yeah. It's you know, it's it's um, if if you're if you if you're not um, if you don't feel grief at it, if you don't, if your heart doesn't ache for what's happening, um, it's because you've you've managed to seclude yourself somehow from. From what's going on, and, and of course, it's a it's a natural thing, but but it's you know that that kind of of seclusion is the opposite of what is needed to heal ourselves. Well, I want to ask you. Uh, yesterday, I listened to a lecture on uh, fracking, and uh, there is this horror in Syria and my question is not political my question for you is how do we not zone out in overwhelm how can we feel this in our gut where we need to feel it so we can participate and not um, go away into our heads Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, um, <clears throat> the, just for myself, there's there's a lot of talk about um, truth and authenticity, uh, which are immensely valuable concepts. But but to me, they lead into the head. You know, am I really being authentic? Well, is that a is that an authentic question? Uh-huh. Um, and how can I think authentically about you know that it, it invites self doubt and 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 um, you know self doubt itself is a sign of division. Um, so so what I for myself what my touchstone what I what I come back to is a sense of my own wholeness and everything in the world sort of militates against feeling your own wholeness, that, that felt sense of yourself in this world. And, you know, no one's wholeness exists apart from the world. Uh, it, you, you're called into wholeness through all your relationships with everything that is. And so, when, for me, when you come to that place of wholeness and when you cherish it and 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 wouldn't sacrifice it for anything. There emerges from that wholeness a kind of clarity that not just enables you to act, but but prompts you into action. Mm. Because when you feel yourself as a whole, it's 
it's your means of feeling the world as a whole. And when you feel that wholeness of the world, you've struck up a dialogue. You've struck up, you've opened the channels for conversation. The world will whisper in your ear, this is what you were born to. This is what... This is what is necessary to your life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because um, I call wholeness dignity. <gasps> and while you were talking, I was thinking about the species of animals that are disappearing and where... I might have most learned dignity is by watching my cat, or I should say the cat that graces me with its presence, with its dignified presence. So animals show us innate dignity, innate wholeness, don't they? And that, and that, that, dignity of the cat <clears throat> isn't, isn't um, an expression just of the cat. The dignity of the cat is an expression of its ease in relationship with the world. Mm-hmm. So in effect, the world is being expressed through that dignity. And we have that same capacity. We you know, do. We, our, our freedom, which to me is, is the most cherished value in, in a way, our, our freedom is, is, that, is that state in which our, our being is whole and, and can be expressed. And our passions and our ease and our... our calling are all manifest in each moment. And it's a state of harmony, unlike, you know, it's a harmony that will take you somewhere and you don't know where, Mm. unlike, you know, ideas that some of the the, the, the self-help promoters that you you don't have to suffer you just have to something um this is the answer you just need this and and if you take away the answers from the self-help industry there's nothing left and yet there are no answers to life there's no answer there's there's experience, there's aliveness, there's communion, but there's not an answer. And so it's a funny kind of paradox, isn't it? But you don't, you know, it's so hard. People are, are feeling deep insecurities and anxieties, and they want answers. They want that. They want that security. They don't want to be told, take a risk, feel your breath. Take a risk, come home to yourself, and see where it leads. And it, it might lead to 
wailing at the top of your lungs. It, it might lead to grief. It might lead to dancing in the morning. Do you, who knows where it might lead? That's not the issue. The issue is coming back home to, to yourself in this present moment on this earth now. And then you find your place in this remarkable dance that, that, that's happening all around us. Is there a need for courage to be willing to come to the present moment? I, I, uh, there's a line in my book that I occasionally come back to, which is, which is that the entire path of our lives is shaped by a tug of war between a desire to remember and a desire to forget. And people, people want to forget. They, they, you know, you, you, you they don't, there, there's, a, there's almost a, a, a subsonic plea within our culture that, that I hear that, that, that's expressed by the words, please don't let me feel. Mm. And people get into their cars and into the upholstered chair with their music and it's climate controlled and they don't feel the air. They don't hear the world. They don't, they don't sense the living presence of the world. And, and they prefer that. They would rather not feel. And, you know, the opposite extreme of that is you get on a bicycle and you ride and you feel the engagement of your body and, and the, the sort of looming threats of traffic around you and you hear the birds and the cars and, and you're alive to the world. You're activated. And people, people don't want to be activated. They'd rather fall asleep. And so that, that activation comes when the desire to remember takes hold of us and my gosh it's a, it's a journey to remember it's a journey to remember the body you've you've so neglected and so taken for granted and so abused you know and then you and then you you remember it and you you start to move out of the head into its sensitivities and its presence and you begin to remember and yes it takes it takes courage it's that that journey back into the body is in a very real sense the hero's journey it's the conclusion of the hero's journey it's the homecoming and you know you think of the odyssey and you think of what it took for odysseus to return home, you know, going to Troy and fighting the war, that was, that was almost nothing compared to the homecoming. And that homecoming of Odysseus, all those trials and, and, and joys and heartaches that he went through to get home, to return to his wife, you know, that the female representation of his being, to return to her took courage every step of the way it's 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 called a hero's journey for that reason but, but what's i mean all the myths of 
the world are there to help us, to help guide us and support us in that journey. And, and if, you, if you don't make that journey, then you're slipping, you're giving in to that desire to forget. And in that oblivion, our, our planet is currently suffocating. And it, that oblivion begins with our own bodies. You know, Philip, once I wrote a poem uh, decades ago mm. where I said that my body was my poodle and... What I meant by that is I was so jealous of my sister and my sister has this little gray poodle and as a little bitty thing, I tried to hang the poodle, but I, I hung the poodle on a branch that bent. <laughs> Probably just as well. <laughs> but I was small and I could only reach the branches that bent. <laughs> and then now today, um, going back to the cat, I would say my body is those animals that I so deeply respect. And I just want to tell you what my posture is while we're talking. And every time it's like that, I bend over the phone. My, I'm sitting and I bend over the phone. And my eyes are closed. And I rest my head on my arms or my hand. And I feel this overwhelming sense of being connected to you. I feel the antithesis of loneliness. And so I just want to wish to the people who listen to us how to feel that beauty that comes about from feeling heard, feeling field, feeling felt, and feeling connected to another being. Yeah, it reminds me that, that phrase, feeling felt, it reminds me of the, there's a, a Latin uh, verb that our word consciousness comes from, and it's, uh, the verb is conscire, and it means to be mutually aware. So consciousness comes from this word that means to be mutually aware, and that sense of, of feeling that you're being felt when, when you, you know, when you do recover your senses. I I have that sense with a pencil that when I when I give a pencil my attention mm-hmm. as its reality becomes vividly alive to me, I feel that reality feeling me at the same time. The funny thing, it probably sounds a little flaky, mm-hmm. but it, mm-hmm. no. it's the most real experience in my life. And, the, you know, there's a, there's a profound, profound connection between embodiment and spirituality. 
because you know embodiment isn't something that happens within our skin embodiment is what enables us to arrive on this earth in the present alive to it and engaged with it so embodiment at its at its fullest realization actually allows the world to live within you now if the world is dead if there is no mutual awareness it will never live within you cuz you would never allow or or conceive of how a dead thing mm-hmm. could live within you so our spiritual sensitivities which which innate which open our eyes to the aliveness of the world are what enable full embodiment and without without the living presence of the world living within us we're not yet fully embodied however flexible or strong uh, or breath filled our bodies are have you thought about uh, coma and alzheimers and the meaning of those states i i have um people close to me have had alzheimers for example i have a i have a i have a personal sense of it and and my reluctance in speaking about it is just i i, I the last thing i would want would be to foist judgment onto another person yeah Yes. So that having been said, it's only just my sense of it, but but in my experience, those I've seen um stricken with Alzheimer's have have been people who have for themselves sorted the world out. They're people who have arrived at the answer. They they know what it's all about. um and and i think i think if you if you come to that stage of knowing you lose your cherished ignorance hmm. and and in a way it's 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 ignorance that lets you open your eyes to the world and say what is this <laughs> and 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 i think the the more um elaborate and solidified are the structures that that make up our story uh about what reality is what the world is what my place in the world is what other people's places in the world are um i think that the more the more that structure is subject to decay but if if the structure breathes and and changes and adapts and and looks at the world with wonder um it's not you know i'm not saying it it's a it's a a 
cure-all or, or anything like that, but I think, I, think we'd be, I think we'd be less susceptible to the ravages of Alzheimer's. So it was, a, it was an interesting, really, really interesting um, study that was done of nuns. And the study was done of nuns because, because you know, the difficulty with any research is ruling out um, certain, certain effects uh, um, that, that might show up in the results. And with nuns, well, you know, this group of nuns, they pretty much ate the same thing. They, they lived in the same place. They were, you know, their environment was consistent. So, so it was looking at what the contributors to Alzheimer's were. And, and one, of the, one of the most interesting findings is that the independent of diet, exercise, all the rest of it, the, the most reliable indicator for Alzheimer's was found in a piece that when a, when a young woman entered the convent, she was asked to write a, a, a short description of her life and why um, at this point she was entering the convent. And, and these pieces were preserved, and the researchers were able to go back to them, sometimes, you know, decades later, mm-hmm. and look at them. And, and in those pieces, they could, they could assess the the sort of vocabulary and the subtlety and the imagination um, of the writing. And those people who were most imaginative, most uh, um, subtle in their use of language, most um, curious in a way, uh, most filled with questions, I Mm -hmm. suppose, were those who were less susceptible to Alzheimer's later on, to the point where there was a mother superior, and, and the, 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 the nuns had given their consent for an autopsy um, at the time of their death. There was a mother superior who had shown no signs of Alzheimer's at all. When they, when they did the op- autopsy, her brain showed significant evidence of, of what we would think of as Alzheimer's, but she... She didn't. She didn't display any of the symptoms of it up to her dying day. I, I find. I find that. I find that compelling. It's like. It's like. It's like she. She was able to. To dance with the life of the world. And keep doing that and adapting, um, in in ways that enabled her. Her clarity of mind. To be preserved. So the the translation of experience into language can be medicine. That's that's what. That's a very potent, very potent and astute way of putting it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So here. So here we come to a question I want to ask you because I love language and language can be a double-edged sword. It Language can facilitate abstraction and language can be embodied. What does that comment in, invoke? 
in you? In, I, 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 you know, it takes me back to the writing of my book, in which abstract concepts abound. And, and, and I, you know, I'd, I'd hate for anyone to think that I was, was derogating from abstract concepts. We, we, we gain so much through our ability to, to think in an abstract way. But, but more important in the writing of the prose than any of the abstract concepts being presented was was the music of it or the rhythm of it so so if a sentence was not alive mm. in the in it, in its rhythms and and its grace even if even if it seemed to be faithful to the abstract concept it it, it was presenting it it it, it wouldn't it, it didn't deserve a place in the book. It, it, you know, it needed work. It needed help. It needed to be brought along. So, so the embodiment uh, of language is really what, what gives it that grace and aliveness. That the the breath of, of the prose coursing through it, you know, arises from our embodied sensitivities. And I think it's a, it's an important thing that that an abstract concept will serve us only when it's integrated. If it's not integrated, it sort of stands like a sign between us and the world and mediates our experience of the world. The to integrate any abstract concept, though, it needs. The only way I know that it can be done is to, to is to bring it down into the body. And literally, you know, by that I mean literally, if you have an idea in your head, it's a very interesting exercise to try to to have a simple idea. It might be the flower is red or or snow is cold or fire is hot, something dead simple and have that idea in your head and you literally let it descend down through the body not not as an imagined uh, idea but as a, as a felt sense that you're carrying this idea down through the body the way a, a stone might seek the bottom of the lake when that idea finally comes to rest on the pelvic floor, it will have changed in some way. It will have, it converts, it, con it tends to convert from a mere isolated, cut up piece of an idea into a felt sensation. And when an idea converts into a sensation, it has it has the ability to integrate with our being. And so a mere idea can sensitize us. And sensitivity, you know, I've said this before, sensitivity I think of as our true intelligence. Mm -hmm. And that happened, you know, that happened. 
happened in a grand metaphoric scale when when the astronaut took the first photograph of the Earth and and brought it back to Earth and showed it to people and said, look. And this, boy, I, I remember when that happened. Yes. You know, it was powerful. And and so this this perspective, which is really what an abstract idea is, this perspective on Earth was brought back home, which is, to me, is like bringing it down to the core of your being and sensitized us anew to who we are on this planet. And so the best, the best of, of our abstractions are those that most, most radically sensitize us. And that can only happen, in my experience, through the body. The body knows how to integrate in a way that the mind, for all its facility with systematization and finesse, can never approximate. And the simplest test of that is, is, is if, if, the, if, if, the, if the intellect, the, the, the brain and the head, were capable of integration and integrative experience, then you could reason your way into the present. You could arrive in the present by pure reason, because being in the present is the most fully integrated experience we have. And, of course, reason is impotent to bring us into the present. So, if ideas are like friends, we need to feel them. What ideas are you in love with right now? Right now? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, writing um, a book so I'm I'm in love with <laughs> with the you know when when I write a book I I, I don't I th there is no plan I kind of feel it and then I sit down before a blank piece of paper and my hand starts moving and and who knows where it will take me I, so so this this book is what am I most excited about? I'm I'm excited about clarifying the cost of convenience. Mm -hmm. At the moment, mm -hmm. you know, we, we 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 you could cycle to your friend's house for dinner, or you could get in your car and drive. And getting in the car and driving is much easier. And we we on technologies for so much convenience and and we we don't we, we it's like it's like the cost is invisible to us the cost is something that that sort of forms an accretion in our cells and makes our bodies heavy and and dull but we don't have ways of putting words to that cost and so You know, to understand, to understand the cost of getting in the car and driving to your friends, which is simple enough, mm -hmm. but it's like a little window into the cost of all our technologies. And, and you begin to see, well, 
any any action we take really has has its its, its ultimate goal the the hope of making us feel good you know that's that's you brush your teeth because you understand oh, that'll keep my teeth healthy and I'll feel better uh, every everything we do is is in its way a, a means of helping us feel good and and then you understand well well our our sense of feeling good is a direct relationship with our sense of freedom the more free i feel the better i feel mm. right and you realize that's so and then you begin to see you begin to see that people people use means of feeling good that are contrary in the way that that an alcoholic will take yet another drink to try to feel good um and and once you understand your desire is to feel good your ability to feel good is congruent with with your ability to be free then you then you backtrack and you say well then getting into the car how does that affect my freedom well i'm no longer free to hear the world and feel it and and feel the engagement of my body in it or my body moving myself through it and and the more you dilute your sense of the world and your sensitivity to the world the less able the world is to offer you its guidance mm. and when when you're truly free it's like it's like an embrace of a world in which there is no there is no boundary between you and the world there's it's a it's a dance and you're called to the dance and by dancing you enhance the world itself philip i feel like a little child like uh when a little child has a good time with something uh she says again again <laughs> again uh, uh joanna it's such a joy it is it's a, it's, a, it's a great joy to be with you and shall we do it again of course i'd love to oh. again and again <laughs> oh. wonderful wonderful well i i want to thank you for this delicious rendezvous